Father God, um, I just want to thank you for giving us an opportunity to come and learn about you. Uh, this is an incredible experience, and it's really great to be able to share it with those uh, who are here tonight and those who are listening online and, and can or can't be here um, physically for whatever reason. Um, God, it's great to have the opportunity to open up your word um, and just see what it says and get a glimpse of your story and know who you are. God, I just pray that you would envelop us tonight in your presence, um, in your word, and that we would just know you more and feel closer to you at the end of this study, closer than we were at the start. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, we are in chapters 15 and 16 of Revelation. We just went through chapters 13 and 14. We have seen a lot of stuff happen. Revelation in particular starts to pick up its pace after chapters 2 and 3. And in particular, it starts moving really fast around chapter 6. The story just starts to get more and more complex. It gets, there's more and more tension. And tonight, the tension is going to continue to build. Uh, We are reaching very much the climax of the story very soon. And so the tension is continuing to build, much like an orchestra. As you feel the tones start to not harmonize correctly and you're waiting for that resolution to come. This is where we're headed tonight. The story has been building for a long time. It picked up in Revelation 6 with the opening of the scroll and the beginning of the judgments that fall on the earth. And we see separate judgments. In chapter 6, you have the seals that are opening the scroll. And you go through the first six seals. And then there's a bit of a pause and you reach the seventh seal. And when you open the seventh seal, when you see that in, in, uh, in Revelation, there's silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And that silence is awe at what is about to come because what is next is so fierce. And then in chapter eight, it picks up with the seven trumpet judgments. And the seven trumpet judgments are what is part of the seventh seal. The seventh seal kicks off the trumpet judgments. And we've seen six trumpet judgments so far. The seventh trumpet has been blown, but we haven't seen the results of that judgment. We've seen the end game, what it means ultimately, the foretelling of Christ's return, but we haven't seen the judgments. If you remember going through the trumpet judgments, there was a point where the scripture says, woe, woe, woe for about what is next to come. And that is right after the fourth trumpet, because it's saying, woe, 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 to the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh trumpet judgments, because they're so much more severe than everything that has happened prior. And so we've seen the fifth and the sixth trumpet judgments, um, seeing a third of the sun and the moon and the stars darkened. Um, We've seen demonic locusts. The second, it was the first woe. The second woe is you know, fire and brimstone, a third of the people left on the earth are killed, as well as the two witnesses are preaching, doing miracles, and then they die and are resurrected and ascended into heaven. And then the last trumpet, though it's blown, and we've seen the ultimate result of the last trumpet, the return of Christ, we haven't seen the judgments pour out. Chapters 15 and 16 take us into the judgments that the seventh trumpet opens, and they are what are called the seven bowl 
judgment. They are the worst of the worst, the end of God's wrath on the earth. And it is sort of a terrifying picture that is painted. Tonight, before we dig into chapters 15 and 16, I want to read you a couple of passages from the prophet Zephaniah. Because the prophet Zephaniah sums up these moments um, that we're about to get more detail on. This is how he puts it in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. He writes, The great day of the Lord, it is near, and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There, the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. So that's just a grim picture of what we're about to get into. So as you think about those verses and you hear them, you'll see how they explain are more explained in more detail in Revelation chapter 15 and 16. But there's another quick verse I want to share out of Zephaniah in chapter 3. It's verse 8. It says this, Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, and the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. So that's particularly speaking about one of the judgments we're about to read. So let's dig in for a second. Chapter 15. The heading of this is the prelude to the judgments. This means we're about to see the final bowl judgments, which is what the seventh trumpet opens. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. So chapter 15 opens up with this great sign in heaven, and you see seven angels prepared to open up the seven last plagues that are going to fall on the earth. But then he sees the sea of glass. And we talked about this in Revelation chapter 4, how the tabernacle was built as a model to give us an example. And the tabernacle back in Exodus 
was written and built as an example of the temple that exists in heaven where God's throne room is. And the sea of glass is like the bronze laver in the temple or in the tabernacle that was built. But it's solid. It's glass. The bronze laver is where the priests would go and wash themselves before they entered the holy place so that they could be ceremonially clean before they came into God's presence. In heaven, it's a sea of glass because there, no, there is no need for it to be liquid. There's no more need to wash because the atoning work of Jesus is already complete. So the bronze laver in the temple is solid. There's no need for washing. It's completed. And so you see here the tribulation saints, the people who overcome, the people who stand against the beast, his mark, and the number of his name, they're victorious, but they are victorious in fire, which fire represents judgment. So this picture gives us the point that the tribulation saints are willing to give up their lives for the sake of victory over the beast because they have victory in Christ and they are given and granted eternal life through Jesus. It might be depicted even better from a couple of chapters ago. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, this is a description of the tribulation saints, those who come to Christ during the seven-year period. It says, this is Revelation 12, verse 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death, meaning they were willing to die for their faith. A lot of commentators and preachers believe that the tribulation saints, the people who come to faith in Christ during this period in history that is in the future, they will absolutely understand the risk of coming to faith in Jesus. Much like the members in the Middle East right now who come to faith in Christ, they recognize what, their, what the danger is and how they could be treated by the government and their family uh, for coming to faith in Jesus, that they could be killed or martyred for their faith. Or much like a lot of churches in Asia um, and throughout the world, there's, Christianity is still the number one persecuted religion in the world. There are a lot of people who come to faith knowing exactly what the risk is coming to their faith. But in the tribulation period, this will be global and it will be everywhere. The risk will be known and they will consider it victory to have not taken the mark of the beast and are willing to sacrifice their lives for the sake of their faith in Christ, knowing that they have ultimate victory and eternal life because they didn't focus on the temporary and their comfort. And so that's the picture of the tribulation saints through this period of time. And then we pick up in verse 5. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So we have this picture. These seven angels come out, and the temple is suddenly filled with smoke from the glory and wrath of God that's about to be poured out. And even in heaven, you can't enter the throne room because of the smoke that exists of the wrath that's about to be poured out. And you see these seven bulls. And they're golden bulls, and they're actually really shallow. 
the depiction in Greek is that it's a really shallow bowl. So when it's poured out, it's poured out quickly. It's something that will happen very quickly and instantaneously. So these are going to be very fast-moving judgments. To put it in a, in a different perspective, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 24 re, when he referred to the end times in the last days. Jesus said in verse 22, And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So these are very quick, rapid judgments in a short period of time at the end of the tribulation period. And they are shortened because you're going to see how crazy and just awe-inspiring these judgments are. And if they weren't happening over a very short period of time, no one would be able to survive. So here we go. Chapter 16, we're going to see the seven bowl judgments as we get closer and closer to the ultimate climax of this story. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go out and pour the bowls of wrath of God on the earth. The first bowl. So the first went and poured out on his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So the first bowl judgment are boils or sores get poured out on all humanity, on everybody who has accepted the mark of the beast. This, and you'll notice almost every plague, there's one that is excluded from this, but almost every plague has a connection again to the plagues in Egypt. The sixth plague in Egypt in Exodus chapter 9 was a plague of boils that came upon the Egyptians. So we're going to see how that connects through the rest of this chapter. Then the second angel poured out poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So the second and the third bowl are poured out on the waters. The salt water first is the second bowl, and all sea life and all saltwater life is destroyed, and the waters are turned to blood. Then the third bowl, all freshwater sources are turned to blood, and all freshwater life is destroyed. And then it says the angels are speaking, and they're justifying God's judgment, because they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. And because of that, God is now pouring out his wrath on the wicked and those who have taken the mark of the beast. And now they are forced to drink the cup of their own wrath that they've poured out on God's people. This also is like the very first plague in Exodus when Moses and Aaron turned the Nile to blood. And then we have the fourth bull. Now this one actually isn't, I couldn't find a connection to Exodus in this, but I do think it's interesting. Because then the fourth angel poured out his bull on the sun and power was given to him to scorch men with fire and men were scorched with great heat and they blasphemed the name of the Lord 
who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Now, there's a lot of connection between the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. In the trumpet judgments, you, th- you see a third of sea life destroyed. You see a third of fresh water poisoned. In the bowl judgments, all of the salt water and all of the fresh water is destroyed. In the trumpet judgments, a third of the sun, moon, and stars were darkened. But I don't really know what's happening here, but suddenly the sun has become a source of heat, and I don't know why, but these men are scorched by the sun. So I don't know if it's like an almost like a nuclear winter type because the, the sun has been darkened so much, and when things clear, the heat and the greenhouse effect from that is going to be catastrophic. I don't know if it has something to do in connection with the boils and the reaction to that from the sun. I don't know, but suddenly the sun will be used in a specific way for a specific judgment on men. Now, then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blaspheme the God of heaven because their pains, their sores, their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Now we just had the sun heating things up and burning men, and now suddenly at least the kingdom of the beast and where the throne of the beast is has become darkened, and now people refuse to repent. There's a couple of arguments about this section of the tribulation period. Um, about whether or not repentance is even available at this point in time. And I tend to think not. We've seen God has waited and waited and waited to bring the the tribulation period upon men because he waited as long as he could so that as many as possible would be withheld from this time of judgment. He wants as many people as possible to obtain the life of the kingdom. And then after the rapture, And after the tribulation period starts, he sends out two witnesses to preach for three and a half years to bring people the gospel. He sends 144,000 Jewish men sealed by God to preach the gospel. We even saw in Revelation 14, an angel, a last ditch effort, God sent an angel to preach the gospel to the people to let them know that God's judgment and wrath is about to be poured out. And he gave everybody one last opportunity to repent, and they refused. This is a lot like the flood. Noah had built the ark for likely about 100 to 120 years, and God took his time and waited to send that judgment, and nobody would repent, and then the judgment came. So at this point, it seems that Men have drawn their line in the sand. Those who would repent have done so. Those who would not have taken the mark of the beast and refused to ever accept Christ. And because of that, God now is pouring out this awful wrath for a very short period of time. And then we have the sixth bowl. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and the water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So you have 
three unclean spirits coming from the unholy trinity of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And these, these demonic creatures look like frogs. And what do they do? Tells us in verse 14, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth of, and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So these, de- these demonic creatures that look like frogs come out of the beast, the dragon, uh, and the false prophet, or Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and they go out to all the kings of the earth, and they somehow convince them, or I don't know if they infect them, or possess them, or whisper and oppress them, I'm not sure, but they convince them to come to the battlefield to the great final battle for the great day of the Lord. And this, though it's a loose connection, I do find it interesting that these demons look like frogs because the first plague that involved animals in Egypt were frogs. And frogs in the ancient world, in the pagan world, were representative of demons. And so that might have been a way that God was trying to communicate to the Egyptians. And also in this time, they look like frogs. Maybe there's a reason that there is that sort of superstition about frogs. But anyway, there's a bit of a connection. And now there's a pause. Just like every other time, when we saw the sixth seal, after the sixth seal, there was a pause before the seventh seal. After the sixth trumpet, there was a long pause before we got to the judgments of the bull judgments. Now we have a short period, a short little pause that gives us a quick message outside of the judgments. Um, and I think it's only one verse long. It's very short because it's representative of how quickly these judgments are going to get poured out. But the other thing to notice before I get there is that as we've gone through these judgments, there is a connection to the book of Exodus. There, they do have some sort of similarity to the judgments poured out on Egypt with a significant difference. One being that these judgments are significantly larger in scale and much more horrifying, even though they're similar. But the other difference, if you've noticed, is that in Egypt, in Exodus, as one plague ended, then there would be a second. God would release the plague of blood. Pharaoh would repent or wish that he hadn't, you know, wish he had agreed with Moses to let the people go into the desert and worship God. And then the plague would end, and then Pharaoh would harden his heart. And then Moses would say, no, God, God wants you to let his people go. If you don't do it, then there's going to be the next plague. And they would compound until the worst plague, ultimately in the end of Egypt, but they would, a plague would start and stop before the next plague. But here, you see specifically in the fifth bowl that they were still lamenting number Verse 11, it says, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. So the sores, which was the, was, which bowl, the, the first bowl judgment had not gone away. These judgments are compounded on top of one another. So as they're dealing with the boils, they're still dealing with them and the water is poisoned. 
the, the salt water. And as they're dealing with the boils and the salt water, the fresh water is poisoned. And they just compound on top of one another for this short period of time. And that makes it even more horrifying to the people who are living at this time. And even at that, they, they send blasphemy towards God and refuse to repent. And then we have verse 15, this little break in between the judgments. It says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So let's try to explain this and break it down a little bit because what is Jesus saying? He says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Now, this is never usually a good sign. A thief is not somebody you want to come. He is coming in judgment and he's coming quickly. But blessed is the one who watches, the one who is ready. The one who keeps his garments, because if he didn't have his garments, he would walk naked and therefore would see shame. Now, this brings us to a very important piece of the puzzle. I'm going to open up to Genesis chapter 3 and read a couple of passages, because this will really explain what is happening here. It's not about physical clothing. This is what it's about. Adam and Eve were in the garden. They knew not to touch of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent has already gotten to Eve, and we pick up in verse 7. Adam and Eve just ate of the fruit they knew they weren't supposed to do. They had one rule, and they broke it. Verse 7 in chapter 3 of Genesis. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They were stripped of their righteousness because of their sin. And yeah, they were physically naked, but it was also their righteousness was stripped from them because they broke God's only commandment for them in the garden. So Jesus is saying in Revelation 16, verse 15, that blessed are those who keep their garments. Blessed are those who hold on to the righteousness that they are clothed with through their belief in Christ. Because if you don't hold on to it, if you are standing there in shame, it means you are guilty. You, you are not clothed in righteousness. You feel the shame. Now, Adam and Eve did something interesting. They sewed fig leaves together to try to cover themselves up. And God looks at them, and he understands what's going on. They are wearing fig leaves. They're covering themselves up. And he basically says, who, tells you, who told you you were naked? And they argue about this whole ordeal that went down. God kicks them out of the garden. And after he does that, this happens in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3. Also, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. They were robbed of their righteousness by not following God's rule, the one and only rule that they had. And they tried their hardest to cover themselves up, and they used fig leaves, and they failed. The fig leaves were not good enough. It did not cover them. It didn't cover their shame. So what did God do? God made garments of skin for them. That means an animal had to die for them to be covered. 
something innocent had its life an innocent life was taken to replace the guilt of Adam and Eve so that their guilt could be covered. That is the first message of the gospel in the Bible. Our guilt cannot be washed away by our own actions and our own efforts because the only thing that can cover guilt is innocence. That's why Jesus had to pay the price for sin on the cross so that we could be covered by his blood and covered by his righteousness because his innocence replaces our guilt. Our own efforts are just fig leaves that don't do the job. And so in verse 15, that whole story is laid out. And Jesus is saying, before I come, I am coming like a thief. This is not a good thing. I'm coming in judgment. But for those of you who have been covered in the righteousness of the blood of Jesus, you are blessed because your shame is hidden and replaced with innocence. Jesus is innocence. And so they are no longer guilty or have any shame. So there's a little bit of good news here in chapter 16. Something we can cling to before it gets really bad. In the next verse, and they gathered them together to the place in Hebrew, Armageddon. Now, the word Armageddon actually is Mount Megiddo. This is talking about a real physical place in Israel that exists. It's in northern Israel. The Valley of Jezreel in northern Israel leads the mount to the Mount of Megiddo, which in English would be Armageddon. Napoleon Bonaparte said about this valley in Jezreel that it is the most perfect natural battlefield he's ever seen. And this is the place where the ultimate battle is supposed to take place. Because as part of the sixth pole judgment, the Euphrates gets dried up. The boundary and the barrier, the Euphrates has always been a boundary and barrier against the east. But now the east can march in because the Euphrates River is dried up and they can reach on foot the valley of Megiddo or the Jezreel Valley, which is Armageddon, for the final showdown. I don't want to call it a battle because when Jesus shows up, you'll see this in Revelation 19, it's not much of a battle. He wins pretty quickly, but it's not a pretty scene. Now we have the seventh bowl. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. It sounds a lot like Jesus's words on the cross. This is finished. The final judgment is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the, since men were on the earth. Now, the great city was divided into three parts, this being Jerusalem. The earthquake broke Jerusalem into three separate parts. And the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the heresies of his wrath. So they're about to drink the cup of God's wrath in Babylon. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and the great hall from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, since the, that plague was exceedingly great. So the seventh bowl 
There's a great earthquake like one that's never been seen in the history of the earth. The city of Jerusalem is broken up into three separate parts from this earthquake. And Babylon falls. Now Babylon may be a specific physical place, but as we talked about last week, Babylon also represents the place where paganism started. And it started with Nimrod where he decided to go against what God's rule was. He brought all the people together and they built a monument together that was called the Tower of Babel. And from that point forward, Babylon has been the place where pagan rituals and pagan worship has come. And out of that place, the rest of the world was affected or infected with these pagan ideas and rituals. And now Babylon, that type of worship is destroyed. And then lastly, hail, huge hail from heaven, the size of a talent. Now, what does that mean? I don't really know because every commentary I read has a different answer. There's, you know, everything from 75 pounds to 125 pounds, whatever they are, they're huge, giant chunks of ice flying toward people. Now, the interesting thing about this as the final judgment is that over the last couple of judgments, we've seen that the response has been to shout blasphemies at God. In the law, in the law of Moses, the punishment for blasphemy was stoning. Now, Paul thought that Stephen was proclaiming blasphemy when he was speaking about Jesus. That's why Paul brought everybody together to stone Stephen, because they thought that he was blaspheming, and the punishment for that was stoning. Now, Paul ultimately realized when he saw the resurrected Christ that he was wrong, because now he knew that Jesus was alive and was the Christ and is the Messiah. But ultimately, just like the waters were turned to blood and the angels justified it because this kingdom that the Antichrist and the beasts and the dragon have built was killing the prophets and the people of God, that that judgment would bring turn the waters to blood so that they would drink the cup of their own wrath and their own decision. Now the Mosaic law is being met against all of these blasphemies that are being poured out on God. And now giant stones from the heavens are being hurled at the earth. So the, the judgment is just. And that is the seven bold judgments. And we work next to get into this upcoming battle uh, in the kingdom of Babylon and what all of this looks like and what the financial system looks like are coming in the next few chapters. But the final judgment has been released, and we are about to see the return of Christ. And this is the complex issue that we have to deal with here. Because most of the time, we think about the grace and mercy of Jesus. But when we look into Revelation, particularly in this chapter, we see this heavy bowl of wrath get poured out. And the only saving grace of these bowls are that they are short and quick even though they are compounded, this is a very short period of time to make sure that some people survive it. But God's wrath is unparalleled, just like his love is unparalleled. And the hardest thing to look at is that we don't typically recognize this in our culture about who God really is and the type of power that he withholds. I think if we really understood the whole picture of who God is, that there would be a little bit more reverence to follow him and to accept the part of God that's easier to like. 
because if we really understood both sides of his character, his left and his right hand, now his right hand, when you look at the pictures of heaven, those who sit on the right hand of Jesus or on the right hand of God are those who have accepted him. When you'll see it in in the the judgment times that are coming, especially in Revelation 21 and 22, that those who sit on the right hand of Jesus are those who are forgiven, those who have accepted Christ and those who love him. And they sit on the side of God's mercy, forgiveness, and grace, and they have their names written in the book of the life of the Lamb because Jesus was willing to give up his life for those who would believe in him. But on his left hand, those are the people who refused to accept him no matter how much he put himself forward to them in front of this earth. And they blasphemed him. And unfortunately for them, our God is perfect. And because he is perfect, he cannot tolerate sin. And if you are not willing to accept the covering that Christ provides and put on his righteousness, then they're naked. And they stand ashamed and guilty before a perfect God who has to judge them. And it's not what he wants to do, but it is his character. He is perfect and sin must be dealt with. And this is unfortunately how it works. Thankfully, we do still have time to send the message, to do what God did. All the way back in Genesis chapter three, when the gospel started, there is innocence to cover our guilt. We can't do it on our own. We can't compile enough fig leaves to cover up our own guilt. But there is an innocent sacrifice in Jesus that can replace our guilt and cover us in righteousness. And that is the message of the gospel. And thankfully, we have verse 15 to hang out on for a positive note in Revelation 16. Because even when God is pouring out his wrath, he's reminding us of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you for who you are. That You are perfect, and you can't accept any less than perfect. And even though we are flawed and we cannot reach your level, you have given us a way to do so through your Son, through Jesus. God, I pray that we have the ability and the motivation to help as many people really understand who Jesus is and what he's done and how they don't have to feel that shame and guilt and they can be clothed in his righteousness. Help us to do that and to share that message. In Jesus' name, amen.